you all for coming to the Comparative Media Studies uh, Colloquium Series. Uh, very happy to be in collaboration with the Center for Civic Media uh, tonight. Uh, I'm Ian Condry. Uh, I teach here in Comparative Media Studies, and uh, I'm here to welcome you all. Uh, one thing I'd like to say uh, is that we have this colloquium every week, uh, 5 to 7 p.m., uh, and I also want to alert you that uh, uh, the idea is that we'll have uh, a brief talk, about 40 minutes or so, uh, uh, by Zeynep Tufekci, uh, who I'm sure you all know is here and delighted to hear. Uh, uh, I'll be doing part of the moderating of the session, and so will Ethan Zuckerman. He'll introduce himself as well, but he's director of the Center for Civic Media uh, here at MIT. Uh, the only other, a couple other announcements I want to make. One is that there will be a reception. You're all invited to a re reception downstairs on the third floor, uh, immediately following uh, this uh, uh, this event. And it'll be sort of wind around uh, third floor, go down third floor, and then you wind around that way. But hopefully there'll be enough people. But you can find it. You want to find yourself to the way the comparative media studies department. And there's signs around. Nice new signs, I noticed. <laughs> We're becoming all official now. Uh, and, uh, and thank you. And the other, one other announcement I want to make is that uh, the speaker next week uh, will be an artist uh, by the name of Coco Fusco. Uh, and she'll be uh, talking uh, about Planet of the Apes and politics. Uh, <laughs> actually a very Which, uh, frankly, a few weeks ago I didn't really get, but now it seems just right. Uh, <laughs> so, Don't uh, denigrate we'll the apes. Sure what it's gonna be. The apes are uh, too good for the. Quite entertaining. Uh, and joining me with the introduction duties is Ethan Zuckerman. I'll turn it over to him. Hi, everybody. I'm Ethan. Um, I work with Comparative Media Studies. I also direct the Center for Civic Media. Uh, but I'm here mostly because uh, my very good friend is speaking here today. Uh, I'm really thrilled that we're able to bring in uh, Zainab Tufeshi. Uh, Zainab reminded me that it's not her first time in this room. And in fact, the last time we were sitting in chairs here, uh, we had a conversation in this room uh, with Sami Ben Garbia, who's a leading uh, Tunisian media and human rights activist, uh, and also with Clay Shirky, who is uh, w one of really the great thinkers about technology, sociology, and social change. And I give this intro because Zainab is uh, sort of an incredible bridge, perhaps, between those two figures. Uh, she's a very accomplished sociologist. Uh, she's assistant professor uh, at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's in the School of Information and Library Science, but also with an appointment in sociology. She's taught sociology at uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, but she's also got very deep tech roots instead of looking at tech and social change, including uh, a stint at the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton, uh, which is one of the, the very best centers in the space. Uh, long affiliation with the Berkman Center at Harvard. And the reason all these people want to work with Zainab is that there's so much to be explored about how technology is changing what it means to organize for social change, particularly to organize for social change under a condition of government repression, uh, which is a real specialty of hers. She's going to talk today about research that she's been doing uh, in the wake of the Arab Spring revolutions in, in Tunisia and especially in Egypt, where she's done some great field work, and also uh, about uh, recent events in her native Turkey uh, around uh, the Gezi protests and sort of the movements around there. 
And these are incredible sort of high visibility events. They're sort of like the charismatic megafauna of civic media. They're sort of where everybody sort of looks up and, and pays attention to it. And one of the things that I absolutely adore about Zainab's work is that while she's doing a lot of stuff that has great scholarly rigor and, and the academic publications, she is absolutely unafraid of being involved in the debates about this sort of moment-to-moment and day-to-day. And so she may be as well known for her blogging and tweeting and sort of real-time coverage of these events as she is for her academic work on all of this. Um, so uh, she's a, a really remarkable person. We're very, very lucky to have her here. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. My laptop will be open, not because I'm doing my email, but because I'm trying to blog the talk. Uh, and, and so uh, with no further ado, Zainab, we're really happy Thank to have you. you here. Ethan's always just so kind. It's kind of like you have to collect your blushing down a little bit so you can start talking, but thank you. Um, So it has been a really interesting year for me. Uh, I am a scholar of social movements, but my other topic of interest has long been surveillance. Uh, And in June of 2013, in the very same week, NSA revelations hit the news exactly as the Gezi protests in my home country of Turkey uh, sort of started. So it's been a really analytically interesting year and you know I keep sort of looking at the um, historical moment we're going through where it's quite hard to say anything without feeling like in six months everything I say will be invalid. Uh, It's really sort of difficult to do conceptual work because the conceptual work relies on maybe five to ten years of case studies maximal in terms of sort of the internet becoming common. But that's what I really want to try to do. Uh, and so I, is, uh, I, I was talking to Nancy, who's there, Nancy Bain, she's awesome. Uh, and I'm really ready for the idea that some percent of stuff I think about are wrong. I just don't know what percent and which ones. So I am sure I will <laughs> be told which ones uh, are good candidates. But so my talk, I, and I've decided that I'm going to give sort of the, one of my core new theses about the internet's role and how it's playing with social organizing at the beginning of my talk and then I'll get into the case study. So I studied the Arab Spring, Uh, I've been to Egypt, I've been to Tunisia, I have a couple of publications including survey research and there's been a lot of other great research on this. It's one of the, I think, very heavily studied topics. Occupy. Uh, I've written about it, and you know, there's been a lot of great research. Sasha's in the room, so there's a lot of other people who. There's a lot, um, and of course, there was the M15 Indignados movement in Spain. There's a lot of great work on that too, and then there's uh, in Italy, and all of them. I kept seeing various similarities from case to case in how they played out. But it wasn't until Gezi I felt empowered to say, okay, I am going to name the similarities conceptually. Because Gezi was partly my home country, so I understood it in a way that is hard to understand or at a depth uh, that I understood it. And also, it was a very good analytic study because it's a fairly developed country compared to the others. There's both police repression, but it's not like Egypt or Tunisia was. Um, so it's a mixed case. And also, I saw a lot of differences in how this protest wave played out in Turkey 
in 2013 compared to how it would have in 10 years ago. So my theory is a bit related to the what is happening here. This is the Hillary step on Mount Everest. This is the last bit of like 40 to 50 feet of climbing that you have to do before you get to the summit. I have never been there. I obviously, you know, this is not my picture. <laughs> to be very clear, but I have a lot of friends in sort of the climbing and hiking communities. And I mean, this is climbing Mount Everest. It's just kind of like how many people there are and the ropes and everything. This is fascinating because on the day, I, the, the, this picture uh, was on a day that four people died there. This is not a joke, right? This is we see. It looks like a crowded hiking tourist place, but this is you know above 8,000 feet, and there were four people died there. Partly because it was so crowded, and there were so many people who couldn't really climb very fast, who were kind of keeping the line slow. And then if you're waiting at the, you know, if you wait two hours to, for your turn, your just altitude and the cold uh, is very dangerous. So. I mean, look, we're looking at the top of top of thing, and he, around here is a base camp where everybody sort of first gets to. And what has happened over the years is that because of guided expeditions, because of technology, and because of Sherpas, more and more people who have not necessarily gotten the mountaineering skills um, have, are able to get to base camp and try this attempt. So basically, you have a full service trip, $65,000. You carry less to begin with. You have more oxygen, uh, more ropes, ladders, everything. Uh, but they cannot prepare you for that last bit above, you know, sort of base camp where it's really dangerous. There's nothing you can do to get that, that, get that danger out of the last bit of the summit. And in some of the studies, people are talking about you know, some of the deaths have occurred because people couldn't navigate a ladder down a fairly easy hill. I mean, if you can't even navigate that much of mountain climbing and you're attempting to climb Mount Everest, that really is a dangerous situation. So most die on the way down, and the, there's a tick in the death, uptick in the death rate since the 80s when sport got better. So people said, well, maybe we can fix this by putting a ladder on the last very, I, this is very very serious. People are trying to figure out how do we put a and the co, you know why not a coffee shop with a scenic overlook? Great view, right? I mean, this is kind of trying to make it even easier. And um, there are already many ladders. It's still very very hard. I mean, you can put a ladder, but you're still at that eighty-five thousand feet altitude, and just your judgment and everything, it's difficult. The mountaineering community came back and said, no, make it harder. Make people climb seven other high mountains. You know, make them be at that altitude because you, that's the only way you learn how do you behave in that altitude. What are your weaknesses? And that's the only thing that's at some point going to save your life. When do you turn around? When, when can you try the next step? It's not about getting there, but it's about that. So my theory is that we've been arguing these for a while. You know, people say, yay, internet makes lower coordination costs, changes attention and publicity, makes it easier for movements to shape the narrative, overcoming pluralistic ignorance, which I'll talk about, in which you have private beliefs that you think you're the only one, and then internet makes it obvious you're not the only one. And we criticize it for slacktivism, surveillance, and uh, censorship and propaganda. And I think both of these are kind of missing the point. I think the pro-con uh, axis has been constructed incorrectly. 
And my argument is, some of Internet's much touted benefit have significant handicaps as a side effect. I think some of what we're doing is getting to base camp without having developed sort of the altitude awareness and then stumbling in the next step. So if you look at base camp, there are more people than ever. If you look at movements, there are more movements than ever. If you look at movement impacts, um, you don't really have the same movement impacts that you would expect given how many movements, especially, I'll talk about it, it's a little cultural difference on the left-inspired movements and the right-inspired movement, given sort of this movement after movement that we've seen around uh, the world where people have compared to 1848, people have compared to 1989, maybe in size and energy, but if you look at impacts, you really do not see such impacts. I also think some of the dangers, surveillance, even in repressive regimes, I think they're not the thing that is keeping the movements from having an impact per se. There's real dangers, there's real issues, but I don't think that's the heart of the criticism of why we're seeing the cycle where you have Occupy and then you know, two years later it had impacts. I'm not saying it had none, of course it had impacts, but if you look at the size and the energy versus the policy output, you know, we have a country which you know, we still ha we have even less spending on the kind of programs that would have reduced inequality. I mean, in fact, much less. So my proposal is to stop looking at outputs of social media field protests. Start looking at capacities that it builds, and understand that some capacity building comes at the expense of other capacity building, right? And. Stop using online, offline as the axis of analysis, even though those are important, and start looking at what movements are signaling. Right. So this is kind of this, um, and um, so this is sort of the conceptual proposal for doing this. And I will get to all of this. I will explain. So methodologically, more game theoretic, more online, less online, offline, and merge with cultural, social history of social movements because the story I would like to tell is not about the internet starting cultural trends or movements, but really fitting into certain cultural trends that you probably date back at least to the 60s, um, and I, we will talk about this. So, so that's my, like, I wanted to sort of put it all up there in the front, and then I will now talk about Gezi Park, and then tie it all back. So once upon a time, there was this. This is the park that is right next to uh, Taksim Square, which is like the central square in the hip part of Istanbul. It's kind of like our village is right off. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's not the historic heart where the old Ottoman city was, but it's where the nightclubs are, it's where the culture is. It's really like the village. It's more Chelsea-ish down here than now. So there's a little park. And this is actually a pretty lonely park. <laughs> this is Istanbul. That's, you see, that's it. So there isn't that much. And the government, uh, the prime minister, in fact, wanted to turn this into this. And the this is the replica of an Ottoman barracks that had once stood there. He wanted to rebuild them. Of course, I mean, this is 2013. What are we going to do with an army barracks in the middle of, you know, cultural hip part of the city? So he said, why don't we turn it into a shopping mall and expensive residences and hotels? People were like, what? You know, it's just, it, this is exactly the kind of place that doesn't have shopping malls. Every place else in Istanbul is being take, overtaken by that kind of shopping mall culture. So it really was not a very popular idea. 
So people, mostly from the neighborhood, did not want their park turning into um, a shopping mall, and they went there in small numbers. Because we have a fairly popular and growingly authoritarian, but still popular government, and it had felt like it was unopposable. And they had a small protest. They were trying to protect this park. People had ca uh, camped uh, there. Maybe 30, 40 people. I've interviewed people there who were there from the beginning. But then this happened to their small protest. I mean, people who were just sort of there met with oh, pepper gas. Oh, this is just like looking at it makes my eyes hurt, right? It's just awful stuff. And this is kind of hard to argue. I mean, there's a, a lot of times the police action gets framed as, you know, protecting peace, order, terrorism, something, but this just was, I mean, how are you going to sell this one, right? I mean, there's this, 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 this wasn't being, this just wasn't working. So people got mad, and they also saw this as a sign of this. This, because Erdogan himself was very personally involved in wanting this barracks to go up. And people were like, I mean, he's the prime minister of the country. This should be a local thing. Even mayor of Istanbul is not really directly involved, let alone mayor of that little township where this is at. So they, people were upset about it for a bunch of reasons. And they saw it as a sign. So people got upset and took to Twitter and the streets. So this is, you know, the Twitter bird. And this is a penguin, which I will explain to you why they went, uh, they used that. Why did they use Twitter? Because... As this was happening on CNN International and being shown, this is what was being shown on CNN Turkey. Penguin documentaries. It's really, I mean, if somebody had told me this before it happened, I would say, okay, Turkish media has its faults, but come on, you know, clashes in Taksim, multi-day clashes and things like that, and they're showing penguin documentaries? We're not China. Well, it turns out, that there's different kinds of censorship. This was a censorship that comes not from the government. In fact, I think that even the government would have thought this was an overreach in the sense that it makes them look bad. At least cover it and call them terrorists or something. This was just totally ignoring it. You know, this was just backfire strategy. They had cooking shows, and you just turned on television, and it was crazy. Um, the media conglomerates are owned by the media companies. The broadcast companies are owned by large conglomerates for whom the media company is just a way to curry favor with the government. So they want to get government contracts on energy, on construction, uh, Turkey's economy has been growing, uh, so to curry favor with the government they are increasingly self-censoring. So what is happening is there's enormous amount of self-censorship in Turkish broadcast media and if they don't self-censor, the government does say, you know, they, they tell me stories of getting phone calls and saying just cut her out. Otherwise, they get hit with tax fines and all of that. So it's a very, the media sphere is, looks more like Russia than you would think of sort of a European country. But it's not Russia, right? It's not as also, we, ha we do have elections, we do have a public that's fairly used to a more open public sphere. So this got people really, really upset because maybe for the first time media's depth of media corruption was revealed because this was happening, one, in the middle of the city. So it was very visible. I mean, it wasn't like, if it had happened in the Kurdish areas, maybe you could spin a story because not that many people from Istanbul might have known what was exactly happening. 
but also because of social media there was enormous documentation you know who are you gonna believe your lying eyes that was the situation so people got really upset um, so after a full day of clashes, multi-day clashes really coordinated on social media they occupied Gezi Park. I mean, this was just sort of this, the, it started from a 30 person, 40 person small protest to the social media fueled outrage to occupation of the park. Right? So, I packed up my gear. Right? And, you know, so bicycle helmet because really the big the gas, the tear gas is awful, pepper spray is awful, but it's really weird after this you know, eighth or tenth time, you're just like, okay, this is just going to hurt, but not going to kill me. Um, so, but the tear gas canister landing on your head can and will. It really is a serious danger. But I'm also statistically oriented. I think the sunscreen was the most important part of it. It was June. It was beautiful weather. Uh, so I think that was my most important protective gear. Uh, but, you know, the, the followed by the bicycle. Uh, so I went. Right, so this is me there, and this is my little, um, and the best way I found to interview people is not to use anything that connects to the internet, just air gap your thing. So, Gezi, 11 year party reign, polarized country, ineffective opposition, this is all Turkey specific, an electoral system that doesn't, um, th that doesn't encourage new parties that can be effective. So this is, this is all happening in that particular kind. I was going to call it dysfunctional, but the last two weeks have really changed what I think can be, dis you know, so I'm <laughs> I, I need a new word. Not as dysfunctional as can be, but fairly dysfunctional. So and there's real fears of growing outreach and uh, gr um, authoritarianism. So here's what I found in this. It was like a Smurf village. They had created, I mean, it was kind of like the way the Occupy camps were, uh, they were so full of energy and creativity and solidarity and I, I kept calling it, I mean, it was just a really nice place to be. Except Gargamel occasionally visited, right? So if you know the Smurfs, they're, li they're little brown, blue people that live under mushrooms, but Gargamel comes and tries to eat them. So, and these are just my pictures of getting <laughs> tear gas here and there. And obviously the worst ones I couldn't even take a picture of. Well, it became this Woodstock meet Paris commune thing. It was really, you know, it was a modern country in many ways, a modern district, but on the other hand, the police repression is real, so it's this mixed case. So here are some of my, some of my pictures. This is the library, uh, and you can tell, you know, just, uh, you know, libraries seem to pop up in a lot of these things. Occupy had them too. Uh, this, the Roma ladies who normally sell flowers to the uh, locals and souvenirs, they were like, okay, I mean, this is anybody, anytime anybody tells me third world needs more entrepreneurialism, I'm like, you've never been there, right? You know, you've never, you've got to be kidding me. You know, immediately they switched to selling uh, the masks, uh, which were locally produced. I tried to track it down, and so they, they, they were locally produced. Spray paint for your graffiti, uh, goggles for the tear gas, and there you go. I mean, the economy switched, and there's also helmets. They switched like that. This is the kind of place it turned into, right? There we are whirling, dervish wears pink skirts and has a gas mask. You want some donage? This is how it worked. So this says a vegan um, looter or marauder was something that the prime minister called people, chapuljin. People were like, okay, you know, we're looters. That's, and so they adopted. So they, this, this is just really a fun place. 
And you know Bansky is in New York. This was like this became the symbol. The, if you know his um, guy throwing a flower, the penguin. And it says "diran" is resist, but it's used the way "occupy" is used in English. So when you say "diran" something, you're saying you know "occupy MIT" would be "diran MIT," right? So. It was like every other one of these things that I've seen in which there was one no and many yeses. This kind of goes back to the sort of Zapatista slogan where you see these movements trying to come together to say no to something, but the movement itself is composed of fairly heterogeneous elements. So this is a picture of the yellow one, Kurdish flag. I mean the, Kurdish, the pro-Kurdish party. That red one is the nationalist, social democratic Turkish party, which does not get along. And the sky sign is the ultra-nationalist right-wingers. So the three of them, because, you know, police repression and there being water cannon brought them together. Uh, the feminists and queers meet the ultra-soccer teams. Like, this is the stuff that happened. This is very close to the, you know, the gay LGBT neighborhood in Istanbul. There is one. So, um, so there were a lot of people from that community who had taken, of, they were like the lead in the first days. The soccer fans of Beşiktaş were also the lead in the fight in the very first days. The soccer fans in Turkey are like soccer fans in the rest of the Middle East, very young and very macho. So their slogans and feminists were very involved. So the soccer fans' slogans would be very sort of... Well, okay, just I'll have to explain directly. They, the slogans are traditionally uh, based on calling the referee or other team's soccer players insulting terms. So you would call the faggot referee would be the way a soccer team would chant. So they wanted to do, the, to do this to the police. Faggot police. <laughs> so of course we have this, you know, leading the gay community is there and they, were, they went to them and feminists and said, no, 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 no. We're the faggots. We're here. If they were the real faggots, the police, they'd be here. No, we're the faggots and faggots are the people that... So this, we're talking about these 18, 19 year old, very macho Turkish young soccer. They're like, huh? Uh, so there were these workshops, and you know they try to explain, and they're, they're you know the, both for both parties. These are not usually conversations. So they're like, okay, so what are we supposed to chant? You know, if we we can't say faggot Erdogan because then they, the people were like, we're insulted. You know, they don't call him that. It's us. So they convinced them to say, how about sexist Erdogan? So you had the soccer teams chanting sexist Erdogan, sexist Erdogan. So it was just this really interesting cultural experiment in people who you never would have thought come together and having these conversations. The soccer teams with the feminists and the queer groups, with the traditional left groups, the Kurdish groups with the nationalist Turkish groups. It's just amazing. This is like a march that was there a week after the camp was dispersed. And this is a gay pride march that happens right in that neighborhood. And of course, you got the guy with the tear gas mask leading it, as well as somebody in drag on stilts. I mean, this is sort of the cult. I'm, I'm trying to give you guys a sense of uh, the cultural scene. So this is an, a picture I took of a very leading LGBT activist. And this lady from the Kurdish town in Southeast who had come there, and they were, when I pictured them, they were first having a conversation about why didn't we talk before? You know, why didn't we talk before? And it was just really interesting to see these conversations. And, you know, once again, it makes you have social movement theory and sociology always worried about the free rider problem. 
And I'm like, free ride or what? This is the protest itself was the benefit for many people. Being in that space was the benefit. But there were significant costs, right? I don't want to make, again, Gargamel comes. When night would fall, people would write their blood types on their arms because in case something happened, although I have since learned that they do type your blood fairly quickly, but they were serious. They, people were ready. You know, these are two young girls. Tear gas canisters of all types. People were like gourmands. They were like, oh, this one makes you throw up, but this one's okay. I mean, people just collected them. Uh, they have um, sort of a system. Again, it's Turkey. There's a lot of protest capacity, too. They had a system that is um, anti-acid of certain kinds. is good uh, for washing it away, at least from your neutralizing it chemically. These are pictures I took. This young man was hit in the head. It was a serious injury. And this, is, this is just happened every day. So, the complaints were growing authoritarianism, media censorship, and police brutality. This is what came from my interviews there. So what did internet do? It broke media censorship, it helped construct counter-narrative, and it helped with logistics and coordination. These were the capacities in which it was used. So, I, I'm going to go under each of them. So people had gotten to... You know, it was really, got really funny. People were photoshopping penguins into scenes as CNN lure. They were like, CNN, come here, you can cover this. Uh, because the media censorship was really significant. And in this one, this is a picture of a cartoon somebody drew in Gizzi, in which the TV is showing penguins, and the fridge gets so upset that the fridge turns into a TV and starts showing the news. Right? This media was this constant theme. This is a page, this is something I tweeted out. I, I after I came back, you know, a couple. Uh, this was what was on again. I'm using CNN as an example because it's easy for you to contextualize. But all channels, all major channels, were like this. CNN is showing soccer. I turn on Twitter. That's what's on Twitter. Major streets in Turkey. And this was just the media censorship. This is another one I like. Penguins in Antarctica watching what's happening in Turkey. Turks watching CNN, seeing nothing. Right? The censorship was effectively and broken in a way in 2009 in Tunisia. This is, goes back to our panel uh, when Sami was here. There was a similar protest in Gafsa to the one that took off in Sudi Bouzid in uh, 2011. The Ben Ali regime kicked out the journalists, the few that were there, cordoned off the town and just waited it out. In 2009, there were about 22,000 Facebook users in Tunisia. In 2011, Sidi Bouzid did not start very differently than what was happening in uh, uh, Gafsa 2009. Yet it was not possible to contain the news. Censorship and cordoning of an area, it just does not work. And I think this is really... Um, and Twitter was the key tool. Is I have seen so many... I mean, like if Twitter wanted an ad campaign, all they have to do is just collect the amount of art that came out of Turkey... People were really grateful. They trusted it. Complicated reasons why. Uh, they believe it's less um, cooperating with the Turkish government. So, protest coordination absolutely was done primarily through the internet. It was absolutely texting, yes, all of that, but it was primarily mediated through the digital tools. People sometimes, you know, in the Arab Spring, the, the t Twitter, all those tools were more used to communicate with the outside world partly because these tools weren't as widespread in the protester community. I saw this as it was happening, and this is the stories everybody recounts. They keep checking 
their timeline. And the internet worked the whole time, and when it didn't, people got around that it was not, I mean, the complicated reasons was the Turkish government was not going to shut down the internet. It wasn't going to turn itself into a Mubarak. That would just make the cost even more. So uh, coordination and logistics were really, really done using these tools. There was a very strong counter-narrative and protest culture, humor-oriented, youth internet culture that was also spread through social media mostly. I mean, this, these are things that just would not, I, I, I have, you know, this is my home country. I know these were not have happened because people had tried many times in the past before the internet became this widespread. No leadership once again. There was no main leadership like the other times that you know. There was no in Tahrir. There were coordination committees of sorts, but there was no uh, resolving of questions of delegation, representation. Uh, some lists of demands were drawn up, but it was unclear, you know, if the demands had any representative capacity, or it was unclear what the demands were. I mean the. Don't raise Gezi Park was an obvious one, and after that it got vague very quickly. And, uh, and you, oh, this is the argument I'm kind of making: is that you did not have to deal with these thorny questions of representation and delegation, partly because you didn't need them to do other things. You didn't need them to coordinate the camp logistics. You did not need them to coordinate the protests. You did not need them to do many things, and because. They didn't need them, and because since the 60s there's this cultural trend uh, where movements do not want leaderships, they don't want representation, and after the last two weeks, you know, it's kind of hard to argue electoral democracy is this great system, right? So um, after Gezi dispersed, uh, it moved to neighborhood forums, but it became very clear to me in that whole process that the government decided at some point, at first they panicked, and later they decided that this was no electoral or political threat to them because of the way it came to be and started treating it that way. So, uh, and they had huge barricades. This is leading up to it. They had huge barricades. Uh, they had huge, um, there's, there were a lot of people willing to fight. A lot of people did fight. Thousands of people were injured. But I want to be clear that Gezi plus the open internet never threatened the government's capacity to, to repress and government's choices in that space. They could be as repressive as they... I mean, the manpower, it's mostly manpower, manpower, woman power, the kind of repressive capacity of modern states is fairly broad. So there's a lot of rhetoric that, you know, among the Gezi people that they also had such capacity and I would argue they had the capacity to make it more embarrassing for the government but they did not really have the physical capacity or anywhere near it to um, oppose when and if and it was a question of just when right the government decided to come down with a strong f show of force and I think Occupy lived through this too when the force comes it is so powerful uh, the modern states are not weak so these are the, and they disperse the neighborhood forums. This is one I took. Uh, this is the biggest one. They're kind of just people getting together and discussing. But they still haven't f dealt with questions of who represents the movement. At one point, the government wanted to negotiate. And there was frustration f on both sides because some people in Gezi wanted to negotiate. Some people did not. 
a delegation of sorts was sent, but because there was no dealing with the, you know, how do you represent, the people from all kinds of organizations went first. And then they came back, and there were, they just weren't able to um, create any structures that could engage the government. So well, let me go and say that uh, the concept I'm using, uh, capacity building, comes from uh, Sen's work in development economics. And he argues, stop looking at the output. Stop looking at things like GDP. Look at the capacity. So instead of looking at you know, per capita income, look at things like literacy. Look at things that allow people to do things. Uh, and there's been increasing amount of attention you know, to these capacities in development economics. And if you look at the internet, and I'm, I, I, I'm sort of putting this because I'm going to put up these slides, but um, I think what we're seeing is that the capacities that we do not have to build, especially left-inspired movements, they uh, sort of this cultural moment starting from the 60s of wanting to disengage from power and create alternative spaces and do things um, without solving problems of you know, representation or decision making necessarily, uh, are merging to create certain weaknesses. So you find yourself at base camp facing Hillary's step, uh, but you haven't really figured out how do you negotiate the second, third, fourth phase. What do you do after the spectacular street protest has ended? And I also would like to argue that governments have gotten very good at dealing with the spectacular street protest. It's something, it's a tactic they understand. Um, just let me, I, I, I said all of these already, that's why I am uh, moving. So in terms of also attention, right? it's gotten much easier for movements who otherwise would have been buried by censorship to get attention, to put forth a counter-narrative, to put social, intera you know, social interaction among protesters is one of the stronger consequences of protest. People get to know each other, people meet, greet, figure out uh, their things, and protests reveal information. You know, I'm not the only one. So these are the things they do. They also signal capacity. Protests signal capacity. And my thesis is, um, sorry, my thesis is that in the internet era, increasingly governments are looking at protests, and they are also not looking at outputs. When George W. Bush said, why should I not treat this you know, anti-war protest uh, February 15 uh, in New York like any other, like a focus group? It's kinda, he's kind of saying that it doesn't signal a capacity to cause me trouble in ways I care about. I think this is sort of the capacity building, the internet, when Turkish government, if Gezi had happened 15 years ago, it would signal something else to the government than it does now because of how it could be done. This is not a cheap talk argument. You know, cheap talk comes from economics. Like some, you can say something without cost, and a lot of slacktivism <laughs> arguments depend on this. I mean, when I way way tweet something, it's not cheap. It's not without cost. I am not at all arguing the internet is easy. And people in Gezi, they put their lives on the line. People in Occupy, they put a lot of effort. They uh, felt a lot of, you know, brutality. It's not that it's too easy. I try to, you know, it's kind of a little more nuanced than it. It's not easy. It's just that certain capacities are empowered. Uh, it's not a slacktivism argument. It is not at all internet is weak ties argument. I think that one is just such a wrong-headed argument. It's not harder is better just because, you know, I used to 
study for my school work by the gaslight and walk a mile in the snow to get the school argument, right? It's not that harder is better. It's about the capacities you build. So it's a game theoretic look at internet capacity to build spectacular local optima that don't necessarily allow you to get to the next higher level. I mean, you're kind of sort of, you, it gets so quickly and relatively easily compared to the past to get to that stage that you don't have the strategic capacity to say wh where do we go from there. So uh, the other thing I, I want to talk about is media attention in the previous era also signaled elite dissent and buy-in. Now you can get attention. But you never have a moment like when Nixon said if I lost Walter Cronkite, I lost Middle America referring to the Vietnam War. So Internet's increasing ability to circumvent media censorship and get attention, too, comes at a cost, which was that if you broke into media, and if you were able to sort of get attention, you got a strong, you had the chance to get a strong narrative out. Now there's no way to avoid polarization. So my argument is that movements can get attention on their terms. That's a great win. But they cannot get a singular or dominant narrative. It was never, you know, totally dominant, but it was more possible. Um, these are sort of the details. I, I said some of this. The social interaction capacity, uh, I think that th this one, the, it's a win for movements. Social interaction is much easier, much stronger. Uh, it's stronger in just face-to-face -face because it can be far-flung over time. But internet is a homophily machine. I think it's a mutually constitutive process in that online, offline interact with each other. But it doesn't do it only for movements you like. So we have more and more movements. The anti-vaccination movement and sort of the Arab Spring people who found each other before the, internet, uh, before the Arab Spring, partly through things like Global Voices. I think um, we're seeing more movements, but not just the kind we want. Tea Party, the tax day was important for them uh, to find each other. So, and breaking pluralistic ignorance, I, this is something I have written about, I think this is pretty straightforward, that um, increasingly it's easier for people to feel like, find out if they're the only one or not, so this is not key. So, signaling, that's my last bit. Animals do this thing called starting where they jump up. And jumping up really isn't the great way to escape from a predator, because gravity, you know. You guys might have, there's the movie too, right? So you come down. So jumping up is not, a, you're not really saying, oh, I'm great at jumping because that's not really useful. What you're saying is that an animal that can jump high can also run fast. So the jumping isn't the point. The running fast is the point. And so part of what I'm arguing, you know, a lot of animals do this. A lot of animals that are otherwise, uh, unfortunately, uh, eaten, sorry. <laughs> They have springs, right? You don't know what it signals anymore. You're not sure what it signals anymore. So this is why I'm saying that these are not the same. This is February 15, New York. I was there actually and I thought, wow, this is a huge movement. Can they ignore this? Well, it turns out they can. I think it would have been harder to ignore the March on Washington, partly because it signaled a different capacity to do things. Uh, you could look at this and if you understood it, and you could say, the movements that organized this, UFPJ, you know, maybe answer, maybe some other movements, they did not threaten US politicians in the ways they care about, which is losing their office, 
they weren't that kind of a threat. They weren't going to go back to their districts and primary them. They weren't going to do that. So the term I've come up with, and I'm really open to other terms, is like network internalities. We always talk about network externalities. But network internalities are the capacities you build while you're building your network and dealing with all the negotiation that comes with solving the problems of network building. And I think increasingly we are losing, we might be gaining network externalities, but we are losing network internalities that would help the second and third and fourth and fifth stages of social movement trajectory as you see it in the past. Um, yep, sorry, I went the wrong way. So I think that's why many movements get stuck at saying no to something because they've never dealt with, well, how would we negotiate for something else? How would we alter? I saw this in Gezi very strongly. They had a lot of people on their side, they had a lot of popularity, there could have been a negotiating process of sorts that had significant policy impacts, but there was no mechanism by which they could figure out how do we get through this. So that's my sum up. And I, I'm not going to sort of have the discussion, the, the, the uh, summary of my thesis, but I think it's uh, just sort of my way of trying to figure out. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying why didn't the movements, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming any one movement. I'm just sort of trying to say I think this is not at all my point at all. I, in fact, I'm not saying that, uh, again, it's not an internet makes things easier argument. I think I'm saying is that we are having more and more and more movements that compared to the energy they signal, compared to the past, are not having the same level of impact you would have expected and I think this is one of the reasons why this is happening that way and I would like just sort of your feedback on that. So Zainab, that was awesome. Why don't you put Zainab in the middle and why don't you take well, because then she's going to end up playing ping pong. Oh, you're right. Like sit next to each other. That's like vaguely fair. And then we all have the bright white light shining in our eyes and making it impossible for us to see. But only for Tolan, it doesn't actually affect that. It just affects you and me, which is probably fair. So that was great, and and gives us piles of stuff to react to. And I know that there are folks here in the crowd who want to ask questions and who react. Uh, but the whole fun of showing up to moderate these things is that uh, we get to ask the first questions. And, and um, so the question that, that I wanted to ask, so, so I, I take your core thesis mm -hmm. to be that the internet has made it a whole lot easier to call people out for a very specific kind of protest. We don't like this, and so we can all get together and protest this. And there's no you calling people out, people right. calling themselves out. People collectively call things out. But we don't develop the organizational capacity to develop demands, sort of push further than all of that. The flip side to this are, are all the arguments that were sort of made about the Arab Spring in mm -hmm. Egypt that basically said, don't give all the credit to social media, give the credit to labor unions that have been organizing for years. In Tunisia, that pointed to the lawyers' union that sort of got together and got people out in the street. And it seems like most Arab Spring narratives have a combination of a media narrative and a traditional organizing mm -hmm, narrative. Mm -hmm. So here's my two-part question. One is, are you overplaying the media narrative at the expense of those other narratives? 
And, and second of all, if that's the case, why weren't these traditional organizers, why weren't these traditional groups able to sort of take advantage of this incredible moment of attention? Why weren't some of these traditional groups represented in something like Gezi able to sort of say, hey, this is great, let me now recruit another 100,000 so members and go from So perfect question. I mean, this is like, couldn't have asked better. I'm going to give talk about the Gezi specifically yeah. because I can't really balance the sort of pre-Arab Spring narrative as strongly as I can with Gezi, the traditional organizations did absolutely show up. And they absolutely tried what you just said. But I want to argue that traditional organizations, especially the ones on sort of the left-inspired spectrum, which this group was, um, again, they are utterly unable to connect with the modern movements. They uh, were, there was a platform that was created that was called the Taksim Solidarity. On paper, it was 130 some organizations. I went to their meetings, 13 people showed up. I mean, obviously, if you have 150 or, you know, organizations and 13 people show up. They were, their way of doing things was outdated is too little a term for it. So I'm not calling, I am not at all calling for old ways of doing organizing. People were, and there's a reason people are sick of it, right? There's a reason that trade unions aren't very effective in this country because of the way, I mean, this lack of vision, lack of being able to speak to the demands of the people, the lack of, these movements have turned into, a lot of them turn into unaccountable organizations. They have, you know, so it wasn't like the old style organizations really fit the moment either. So in Turkey, they did not predict this. They jumped on it. But they couldn't speak with the people who had shown up. And they wanted to go there and say, uh, here, would you like to sign up for us? I mean, that's really, they don't have, a, I mean, if something different kind of strategizing is going to come out, I really don't think, given what I know in the case of Turkey, and I think we can kind of fairly strongly predict this, because if they were so great, if the traditional organization narrative was really true, well, where were they post-Arab Spring? I mean, they, we didn't really see a huge impact for them post-Arab Spring either. I think there is this decay of institutional capacity on the left, partly because, especially on the left-inspired spectrum, Partly because, you know, questions of representation and delegation and accountability and participatory democracy. People want to more participate. They don't want, you know, Theda Scotchpole's point about we turn into managed organizations instead of being organizations. They just want to collect your check and membership. I think all those models are very, I mean, that's not the kind of capacity I am talking about. And in Gezi, they showed up. They weren't able to really lead. They weren't able to recruit. They kind of followed the energy that was there, and after Gezi was over, they kind of went back to the old ways. They're neither effective nor attractive. So are, are you seeing anyone to, who's able to harm it? Because it, it, of, otherwise, like, this is really depressing, right? So well, what, what this sort of comes down to is, here's a lot of spectacle. We can get hundreds of thousands of people out into the street. The traditional organizations can't harness it or figure out what to do with it. It's alien to that. I, I mean, is the right figuring this out? Is there the argument that the Tea Party seems to have done this extremely effectively in the okay. United States of figuring out how to mobilize 
and turning that directly into electoral power. Is the left just really bad at this because we're obsessed with participation in a way that ends up being sort of unhelpful? And okay, so, I mean, if you look at Spain, where you have 30-40% youth unemployment, and the M15 movement, that is really powerful and strong, and you see this every, a lot of places in Europe, but they haven't been able to do anything to turn around the austerity bandwagon, right? So this effect, ineffectiveness is across the spectrum. Uh, so I, I want to sort of uh, start from there. I don't think it's depressing as much as one would uh, think, because I think the amount of energy for change, the amount of sort of the, the kind of creativity, and people sort of really doing things that just weren't done just three, four, five years ago. I think this is an enormous potential has been unleashed. I just think that the kind of smarts and energy and desire for certain kinds of social justice, if people need to step back and say, well, we have the same pattern again and again, is there some way in which do the things that we, especially on the left, have become you know, so obsessed with, as you say, participation, there's nothing wrong with it, except unless it paralyzes you to the point of ineffectiveness. Now, the Tea Party is an interesting counter case, because, one, left and right movements always have different dynamics, because, you know, billionaires show up to help them more than the other, and their police repression usually different, and all that. But, they did strategically engage the primary process, and get their people elected. So they had no, like, uh, that would have been alien to the Occupy way of thinking. I mean, that would have been just sort of alien to Occupy way of thinking. To them, it wasn't alien. And I think because they also weren't acculturated into uh, the governance process, they're kind of made, you might argue, they're not able to get too far with it. But I'm looking at it. They derailed Obama's first term almost managed, you know, they cost the economy, they, they might have looked like they lost, but a lot of people are arguing economically they must have cost one or two years of growth for the United States. The government's funded at, you know, sequestration levels. It looks like pretty significant impact to my eyes, even though it was the only strategic extra step they took was to take their energy and some, you know, smarts and money from rich people and engage the primaries. So, I mean, I think that's a case for how a little bit of strategic thinking. I I believe there are fewer people uh, on that side who got mobilized than probably Occupy numerically, but if I look at the impact, I'd have to give it to Tea Party. I can follow up on that. um, I don't know if it's depressing or not, but I guess it certainly raises... I'm going to just be depressed. No, 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 exactly. exactly. (laughs) It is kind of depressing. Or... Or at least it's discouraging, I suppose. Uh, and, and I guess one of the things I hear is that we need to think more about the steps to impact. Right? right. Like what are those steps to impact and getting attention, occupying a park, uh, getting over some of those logistics problems that unions used to be able to do right. or other you can get the mar- people out marching and, and voting. Uh, that there's that we're not getting to that next step. And, and so I guess one of the questions I'm curious about then is, is how you see that next step, right? What are these stages? And because and one of the things that I want to hold on to, I suppose, is the idea that this dream of a more participatory democracy, mm-hmm. this kind of ground-up approach to politics is, in fact, the way to go. Uh, and that, in fact, a lot of the shortcomings we see in capitalism and the failures of democracy 
uh, have to do not with uh, you know a lack of leadership, right? It is that we need a better emperor, uh, right. but that we but that we actually need to increase that flow of communication. That, that it seems to me like where the internet is showing a real new possibility, right? And Wikipedia is the you know everybody always brings up a little too much probably, but there's there's an idea that you know if there is this up and down flow that better outcomes uh, are possible. And, and I certainly, I want to believe that. Mm -hmm. you know? And I see in the Occupy mic check thing a, a different model, right, mm -hmm. for speaking to a group, right, that you don't have a megaphone with power, you have people around you who are willing to go along and, and say what you have to say so everybody can hear. Uh, I, I also, I, wonder, I, I thought you were actually going to go for a, a different direction too, and that if maybe we are misreading what capacity is. I guess that's, that's one of the things I got out of this, is that maybe there are capacities being built by these kinds of movements that are not yet recognizable. Uh, Possibly, yeah. I mean, I think the tea, I, I hate to think that the Tea Party is the model we go with. I tend to think that the Tea Party's success has a lot to do with severely gerrymandered districts. Uh, and that, in fact, the Tea Party is more a symbol of the corruption of state legislatures drawing electoral districts than it is about the success of an organizing capacity that uh, is effective. That's probably a different argument to have, but at least I'm, I'm not sure that's the only uh, way to go. But I do, I would think, so what would be something we could point to as having an impact? I personally, I think this 99% idea uh, is pretty big. Uh, and that it's something that it keeps coming around, keeps mm -hmm. coming around. It's sort of bubbling up, uh, you know, sort of across spaces where, hey, wait right. a minute, you know, right. who are these one percent, and what are they doing? Right. Uh, and who, and if it's ninety-nine percent, then all of this talk of red state versus blue state is mostly a smokescreen uh, to disguise us from these other uh, ways in which power is being regulated uh, in our society. So I guess part of me says I, I want to hold on to the idea mm -hmm. that more participation could help. But then it raises the question, and I think what you raised quite well, uh, is what else is missing? Right. right? I mean, you, and you mentioned some of them, leadership, representation, delegation, a negotiating group that can then come speak for a group. And I'm curious, you, know, you also nodded to the history of social movements. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess I'm curious then, you know, if we are trying to, get out of our depressing, you know, discouraged mode, what's a direction to be moving towards to take advantage of right. some of this capacity, but, but where and where it's called? I mean, obviously, I am not, I hope it's clear, I'm not advocating let's elect a leader, send him or her. I mean, right. that's obviously, I mean, there's a reason that these movements have moved away from it. And there are great benefits to not having, you know, sort of these leaderless movements. There's this part in Wael Gonim's book about when the Egyptian government figures out he's the administrator of this Facebook page and the protests are still going on so they whisk him to the presidential palace because he'd been arrested for something minor but they hadn't really figured out he was central to the page so he's sitting in front of you know the, the head of you know, the Egyptian government at the time and they're like okay what will it take they're trying to buy him off and how many times have we seen movements leadership bought off or corrupted and he's like dude, I can't sell out because nobody would listen to me. I mean, the idea that he couldn't, the, the, they, they could have done, even if he wanted to sell out, there was no capacity for him to sell out. So there's a lot of,
good things that come from this. And the reason people are turned off from electoral politics, the reason that people are, want to disengage are, again, rooted in real things. I'm thinking that there isn't enough energy being spent on can we have a more participatory way that allows us to not be just another sort of trade union, but also figure out a way so that we can stop the gerrymandering. I mean, the gerrymandering, there was no sort of, it wasn't the 10th commandments. There, it was just sort of one party was paying attention, the other party was not. And also the Tea Party, uh, the gerrymandering was supposed to get traditional Republicans into right. the office. So the Tea Party used the weakness in the Republican system because, once again, uh, there's a lot of things that I think, um, I mean, I know people... Uh, a lot of my friends, see, I get a lot of pushback from my friends who keeps telling me that they'll never vote because they'll never change anything. They'll never, you know, sort of engage the local board. They won't do any of the sort of day-to-day -day politics. And I tell them, you're really underestimating the capacity of the modern state to overcome your little disengaged space and run it over. And I think that's what we're seeing. I want people to, I mean, that's my sort of the dream scenario is we have so much creativity we had the old ways of organizing really aren't working for people. They're not inspiring anyone. They're not getting people interested. But we're not using this new creativity, new tools to say, how can we interface with existing uh, power structures so that we can impact them, stop them, change them, alter them? And I think on the sort of less inspired part of the spectrum, the disengagement itself has become an identity. And that, th that precedes the internet. I mean, that just that disengagement. So I'm kind of arguing. And I think the internet allows the disengagement to, it kind of hides how much undermining the disengagement does to some of the movement goals that we have. And I'm not really thinking, you know, because I don't really want an alternative space for myself per se. I'm a pretty privileged person at this point. I can do that. Uh, you know, I can, but in terms of, you know, we were just having these discussions earlier too, um, you, know, you have programs that end up being more like charity uh, rather than solidarity because the legal and political power of the state comes and creates these conditions. In North Carolina, you know, welfare, all p food payments got stopped because of this government shutdown. You know, p th th those are the impacts, I'm really thinking, very day-to-day -day significant impacts. Sasha wants to jump up. So, rules for questions here. Uh, a couple of things. When we call on you, it would be great if you would, uh, if you feel brave enough, stand up. Uh, B, identify yourself. Um, C, a reminder that I like to give in academic settings. Uh, a question is an interrogative statement. It's actually designed to allow someone to give you an answer which is responsive to what you're asking. It is not, in fact, a short speech. You can tell whether you're actually asking a question. If it ends with a slight vocal upturn at the end, <laughs> inviting someone to respond to your statement. That was a statement that was not a question. If you do have a question, it would be great to bring it up at this point. Identify yourself and then ask a question. Who's up? Please. So, I'm going to start with a statement that will lead into a question. You're making me realize, and I never thought about this before, and I really appreciate this talk because I think it is a very 
helpful vantage point from which to Absolutely. So perhaps it's about making people aware of where we are, that we're at that base. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to say, for example, I think one interesting thing is if you're opposing sort of corporate practices versus governments, I think you see two very different... There are many examples of successful social media fuel campaigns that do impact certain corporate practices because for them it's much easier to say okay let's just make this go away if we spend a little bit more money and make the, you know for Coleman versus Planned Parenthood or something like that it is more costly for them to lose that messaging because they're corporations not governments so I think you know, this is another thing uh, I think modern movements are underestimating uh, the resistance they're going to get from state power and the pushback they're going to get from state power. So and that's, I, I think the movements against corporate mess, the, 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 it's very true. Also messaging is incredibly more collective and interesting and both focused and non-focused. There's this enormous energy and it used to be, you know, before, you know, you sort of, I, I, I sometimes feel like this is just me getting old, I'm getting pragmatist, but I really do remember how hard it was to get something not ignored. I mean, like, all your energy went into not getting ignored by mainstream media, and it, was, it could be something incredibly important, and you would just get ignored, and that would be the end of it. Because uh, you couldn't ever... So we don't have to deal with that anymore. So I, I want to say, you know, let's celebrate, you know, call it a win, and move on from there. Um. Sasha, I've been waiting for this question. I've been looking forward to this bated breath. Yeah, like, me too, actually. I knew. But there are so many. Uh, 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 so I'm Sasha Costanza-Chuck, uh, Assistant Professor of Civic Media. Um, so first of all, I love, I love your talk and your whole framing. Um, I agree with almost everything you're saying. Um, it's exciting to see you bring in uh, Sen, because I completely agree that uh, we spend way too much time uh, criticizing new social movements for their lack of outcomes that are measured by traditional right. um, standards and not looking at the capacities that are built inside them. And I definitely am looking at that in the work that I do. I'm a little bit, uh, I think it's important to explain to people who haven't been paying attention that one of the reasons movements are failing is because the state has developed such uh, an increasingly sophisticated apparatus, both of police repression as well as media control. I try to say that, yeah. That, but I think yeah. like, maybe pushing even further on it. But the question that I have is really about, the, the place I want to push back on you about and invite a question uh, is, and an answer, um, is around the, I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, you're doing great, you're doing great. 
is, is around the, uh, the hard division that you're setting up between uh, old left social movements and new network movements that engage in prefigurative politics. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I agree and I see that happening and I've been to many of both of those kinds mm -hmm. of meetings and I see the dinosaurs of the old left completely failing to understand anything. At the same time, there are really interesting new base building movements that are doing things like organizing working people who aren't especially digitally connected. So in the US, you can mm. point to people like the Domestic Workers Alliance that sure. has won legislation sure. in New York State, sure. and now California, and soon federal, right. or um, Food Chain Workers mm. Alliance, which is using a new right. model to organize fast food workers, combining, uh, to some degree, social media strategies, but really more old school organizing mm. strategies. And I think that part of what's happening is a generational thing where younger organizers are entering mm -hmm. uh, movement groups that do have face-to-face uh, -face organizing strategies and bringing some of those tools and skills in. But I think the other thing that I feel is missing, and I want to hear you comment on it, is the, is the digital inequality piece. Mm -hmm. So um, if part of what's happening is uh, people who are more connected and are excited about prefigurative politics but don't have a lot of experience with the other forms of organizing that will actually lead to uh, real shifts, uh, you know, winning seats and taking power. Right. Um, part of that is because there's a vast base of people who just aren't digitally connected still. And that's the case here in the US and it's the case in Turkey. And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear you go deeper sure. on digital inequality sure. and what it means for bridging the gap between network movements and old school organizers. Sure, there's like tons of things. So one thing I want to make clear is that that the state is going to come for you is for me like the given part of it and I think a lot of movements on um, that's why I kind of showed the barricades and I said you know people felt like they could resist but that's just you know, this is underestimating how smart and powerful modern states have gotten at dealing with the thing that we've gotten very good at we, you know we meaning sort of the social pro movements uh, so I, I, I I'm not disagreeing with you and to me and I've heard this from other people know from Occupy from other movements and they said why aren't you blaming you know the police repression I'm like well worry about what you can do kind of situation it's true it's there it's awful but even changing that will require engaging and you're not gonna sort of resist it by throwing rocks back at it because they're just more powerful than you can yeah that's not uh, that's a lot of sort of I don't think we're disagreeing there and I can emphasize that more but that doesn't get us anywhere to blame the police repression because I think it doesn't tell us well what do we do that right because it just I'm looking more as a sort of let's say part of the environment in which these things are happening I'm taking it as a given that it's there uh, the digital inequality part I think that uh, like in Turkey in Istanbul I think probably cell phone penetration is close to 100% and uh, internet is maybe 70-80%. What definitely is there is that there's a bit of a generational thing in which p some people are really sort of, it's more integrated into their lives, and for some people it's not. But what this movement did is, and I heard this again and again, parents who showed up and said, in my interviews, I used to try to keep my kid away from the internet and you know sort of thing, and I thought it was good for nothing. And now they're teaching me because people had realized this is this amazing organizational tool and really getting savvy about it. So I think the capacity to bridge that gap comes from the people from 
that side you're talking about, realizing, oh wow, we can do things with it. And the people, and maybe what I'm trying to push is the people from the side who are very well versed in these tools, but are not thinking, you know, how do we unseat the congressperson that's going to uh, oppose a minimum wage uh, increase or something like that. So I'm calling maybe for not do the old version, but sort of that kind of strategic thinking that did exist in more traditional movements, being merged with the sort of real digital savvy that comes. Uh, but it's not just the digital tools, it's also this culture of participation, this culture of fun and accountability and solidarity and you know you have your library with the crazy wig and all of that. There's, that was very attractive. I mean the old traditional uh, opposition groups in Turkey were like, oh my god, this is like fun. Uh, whereas they were used to protests not being fun, not being a place where you wanted to be, not want being something that everybody really wanted to be part of, which is the great part. I, I hear Zeta positing almost a civic divide rather than a digital divide. Like I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, more in, in this context, more <laughs> rather than sort of the fight that I, I think you and I are very used to, Sasha, about sort of saying. There are situations where we expect the digital not to, to to really exclude certain populations. We have to sort of look for the voice. Essentially, saying certainly that that's happening in this case. But but what's actually bringing people out in the streets very much is the pervasive digital piece of it. It's that that question of where you would go from let's go assemble in that park, where you would go into building a broader movement, building a broader strategy, that, I, I, I hear Zeynep at least arguing that, that that seems to be more than that. And in the Istanbul case, the, you know, it's often easier to, I mean, it's, it, it's harder, it's easier for populations that are really struggling to survive, let's unseat this congressperson, usually you don't have to make the case as hard, because I think the kind of uh, no, let's just sort of create this alternative space and stay there, is sometimes a sign of privilege too. And it's the same group that's also digitally more connected because they're more privileged, right? So they're the cultural elements, and I think the privilege elements, and the dig you know, you also have the better smartphone, and you also are not, you know, facing eviction. So you're kind of, I think there's a correlation between the civics and the kind of equipment you have and the kind of digital culture you have. It's not a 100% correlation, but that yeah, might be part of the divide. So let's get some more hands here. Please. Thank you very much. I'm Mine Genjabek from Ankara University originally. Uh, I'm a business scholar at CMS. Now, um, I was in Ankara most of the time and the events uh, took place. I visited Istanbul also. And there are many differences between the protests uh, ah. in Ankara. Yes, there were. Actually, in Istanbul we have a park called Hulu Park. And in there, there were mostly, how to say, more higher class and secular. Right. Say white Turks, people, white Turks uh, in Tunalı district, whereas in Kızılay and NATO Yolu, uh, Abidin right. Pasha, they were very different. They were more working class, left wing, grassroots, uh, chanting slogans against anti capitalism. But for the Tunalı district, the, the main issue was lifestyle right. uh, because before the, uh, you know, before the park, there were so many threatening uh, declarations of uh, Prime Minister Erdogan 
um, against our lifestyle, yeah, because or you know, sure. make three children don't drink alcohol, don't you know, wear so naked, blah blah. So people were really fed up. So um, the the issue for me is really uh, to resist both Kemalist modernization, mm-hmm. social engineering, mm-hmm. at the same time Islamic way of engineering. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my opinion is that it's so there are so few people mm-hmm. doing this. Maybe as a person from Ankara, I just mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. way they don't they don't come together. This is my own belief. I wish you know this photo of. Uh, you know, people, uh, Kurdish nationalists and Turkish nationalists. So yes, you would feel you would. Re- I, I I hear exactly what you're saying. You would have liked the Gezi Park much better. It was not. Sorry, very Turkish conversation. It was not a Kemalist space. It was a very much a pluralist live and let live. I mean, it was kind of. I mean, I I. It reminded me of. Okay, so I'm really dating myself. I went to the Zapatista Encuentros, right? Yes, I was a teenager, but I just was so fascinated by that whole thing. And that's what I, I put the cultural start of this in the sort of the modern internet era, kind of to that, that uh, the Seattle movement, all that kind of heterogeneity. And here's the interesting thing, though. That is not at all usual in Turkey. So the analytic thing is that Turkey too, because of these tools, I think, is moving into a space that five years ago would have been very alien to it. So, so phrasing this as a question and, and, and mm-hmm. opening it up to the non-Turks in the room, right. which I think is all the other people in the right. room, um, can, 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 you, can, can you help us sort of understand yes. why Ankara and okay. Istanbul... So Lila, it's not just Ankara and Istanbul. What I'm trying to say is that there's a new generation in Turkey that looks like some of the ways in which the Occupy people saw it, some of the ways that I encountered among Tahrir activists. The activists are, and the cultural values among those activists of more pluralism, more, you know, less judgment on lifestyle, this resistance to social engineering, protest as self-expression, politics as self-expression. I'm seeing that, I think, in all of the cases, and I think that's all, I mean, on the one hand, obviously, self-expression as this fundamental right is great on the other hand I think self-expression as as the only politics is very limiting so I think they're both benefiting from having the space for self-expression that in Turkey it was kind of like you've got to be the one way and that was it and now there's a movement in Istanbul especially it was like that so you see it's a horizontal global culture you know be the change you want to be uh, that has become more common, but if that's all, that's where you're stuck because you try to be the change you want to be, and then the state comes over and says, "Oops, sorry, we're going to, you know, now change the laws and do this," and you can't do that. So I think the tension uh, in just it's become global. This kind of the civic uh, culture has become global. Jim, um, yeah. Uh, Jim Parity, uh, Comparative Media Studies. Uh, I'm <coughs> very interested in your metaphor, the Sherpa. Yeah. The Sherpa is an aspect, as we know. Uh, yes. And you started by saying, you know, uh, the implication of the Sherpa is that it, it, it provides you this capacity, which right. is not an innate capacity that you've developed mm. through some kind of rigor and so forth. And it also is a capacity that uh, brings you into crowded spaces that uh, ultimately uh, 
uh, lead to things getting in the way and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering if you can sort of unpack that with mm -hmm. some of the other things you've been talking about with the internet and uh, this horizontal uh, impact. And for context that, that we have and you don't have is that right. Jim is an extremely accomplished rock and ice climber. And okay, so, so when, when you bring an analogy of Sherpas, right. he immediately goes, well, oh, I actually know Sherpas. Okay, so, so there we go. That's right. So obviously, I have the limits of the fact that it's a metaphor. But what I'm saying is that I, it, I mean, obviously Sherpas are people, so exploiting them would be bad, and the internet is a per not a person, so exploit it all you want. Um, my, uh, the metaphor relies on having an infrastructure. It's not just the Sherpas, it's also the oxygen and the ropes and, you know, sort of a lot of things. You now have ropes from base camp to the top. Yeah, it's, they have ladders uh, in places. Uh, none of that develops your self-awareness of what altitude will do to you. None of that acclimatizes you. So I'm saying that um, so that's my thing. It's all outside you in some ways. And I think the internet is not as much outside you as the move, you know, sort of the way the Sherpa is outside you. But the Sherpa is not outside you either. You know, your team is the team. So it's part of, you know, you grow as a team. Uh, but there are certain things that it will never, ever be able to do for you at that moment of when you need to realize, okay, I just, I need to turn around. Or, you know, or you, so this is kind of... So maybe it's not the best metaphor. The other one I was using is people learning to cook with pre-cut food. Like everything comes ready. You have these things where they'll just bring you everything in little plastic bags and then all you have to do is dump it into the pot in the order they tell you and then you'll get great food. But if you're actually up, you're going to cook the next thing and you've never learned to chop onions. So this is kind of, I'm like, the metaphor, you might have a better metaphor for me or point out that it's not, I, I have a hiking sort of community and mountaineer community. I just like the idea that suddenly you're crying and you don't know why. You're, right. You've never cut You've never, yeah, that might be it. So. What I'm, what I'm really oh, interested in is right? <laughs> you're after a kind of tension. Yes. And I'm trying to understand if this tension means that uh, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, governor, if you will, of an uh, engine that, you know, as you move uh, at a certain rate, things just stop and they don't move any faster. And you're trying to get at uh, what, what the downside of this metaphor is, because obviously the Sherpa sense is, uh, or, you know, the whatever, the agency. I, I'm curious about the agency and the follow-through of the agency in these movements, how they get beyond the stage of uh, what Ian was talking about before, of the initial phase into the next stage of development and follow-through. And that seemed to be, you seem to be struggling with that, uh, that concept of where these movements go in the second, third phase. Where, where right, well, for the, I mean, it would obviously depend on the country, but you would look at your own country and say, so what are the strategic weaknesses of, or what are the sort of strategic steps we could take to impact the politics as we care about in this particular country? So it would depend on you know, if you have proportional representation, uh, you have a different system. If you have, like in the U.S., district by district thing, you would have a different answer. Uh, in Turkish context, you'd have a different answer. I do not see, I mean, so far, I don't think we've seen any of these sort of the charismatic megafauna movements uh, that none of the pandas have looked and said, 
how do we they none of them have figured this out I think partly because of this tension they got where they were without so, so maybe to to jump in this and I'm sort of realizing that like you and I have actually been on a bunch of stages discussing these questions but I'm actually going to yeah. refer you back to earlier comments that you've made when we were on the stage at the Naval Academy yes. uh, like three years ago so Jim, I think, is, is, is sort of asking the, this downside. Like, what's the downside to bringing millions of people into the street? Your argument, as I take it, is... There's no downside the, to it, yeah. There's no downside to it, but don't expect those millions of people in the street to overthrow a government. And, and one of the things that I'm struck by and, and hope to debate with you at some point is those folks out at the market, Sean Washington, those mattered, whereas this number in Gezi... They signal different things, They yes. signal different things. Right. Okay. But we've had an earlier conversation about this where we said, okay, so Ben Ali fell and Mubarak mm-hmm. fell, but Bahrain didn't fall right. and a number of other countries didn't fall. And at, at that point, your analysis about three years ago was coherence of demands and coherence yes. of the populace. Um, the po- I would say that uh, in the case of Tunisia and in the case of Egypt, my argument would be that the um, the country was so unified, it wasn't really polarized around this question at all. Right. Uh, so if there's no polarization, and if like, the generals wanted to get rid of Mubarak, it was kind of like everybody wanted to throw the guy under the bus. And um, so the, the current system wasn't functioning as well. And I think it would still operate the same way for weak states, because at that point Egypt was a weak state. I think when you have either strong states... Or is in the case of you know when you have polarization, uh, then it doesn't work. And in Egypt, I think what has happened since really shows you that the opposition did not develop. Even the Muslim Brotherhood did not develop the capacity. It really shows you, you know, they were able to do something partly because the military stepped up, and then the military decided it was going to step back in. And but that there's really two pillary steps, right? Like one is. Can you get from a whole bunch of people in the streets to can you change right. the government? And then another one, which is probably not just a single step, sure. but might be a whole amount of time, which is can you get from changing there's the actually to governing effectively? There's like three major steps there, too. I mean, so the thing would be that you know, when you look at social movement trajectories, there are many, many, many steps. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of the getting attention is your very first step, and that used to be something that choked people up. Uh, identifying legislative targets is another thing. And if you're like the 99% um, metaphor, you could go a lot of places with it. There's, you know, taxes on financial transactions that have been floated around. That could so easily be such a strong global movement. It's a very concrete demand. There's, it's kind of hard to resist. It's very attractive. And I've been talking about this with people around the world who've led these movements for maybe 10 years and yet it is not there. This is a question for me. And you know, why is the, this dog not barking? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the, the trick is if you have the pre-cut vegetables or a ladder, that you know where you're going, right? That you know the food's made. When the food's made, when you get to the top, it's there. I think with political change, it's more difficult, right? Or it's more difficult to know when it's actually arrived. I mean, sometimes... You know, it has arrived, or you think it's arrived, it's not quite arrived, it sort of goes back and forth, there's this pendulum swing, and, and so that's why, I mean, I like the idea of, of sort of the capacity building. I was thinking about uh, literacy, right? So right. if an example is we're not going to look at GDP, we're going to look at literacy. Well, 
well, you can imagine that in, in the political realm as well, right? That instead of saying, well, how many Congress people do we have? Uh, how many, what's the percentage of the populace that starts to care? Like, right. well, actually, I should get a little more involved with this. I think right. you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I think that's another way. The other thing I really took is how this enabling one kind of capacity can take away from another right. is that we can lose some of the interest in our political participation if our whole of our free time is taken up in Facebook participation, right? And just keeping up on sort of a few friends we haven't talked, but just sort of going through it, that there's ways in which you can swallow up other kinds of participation as well. I, I think that's an interesting point, but it's still, for me, I'm still trying to think, is there a way to take advantage of these new participatory possibilities while also you know, having that kind of old school impact? Right. Uh, there has to be ways. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of this is a total counterfactual, but I really don't know why there is not this very strong global movement for a financial. Because it used to be that it was every country you right. couldn't do it, but right now you can do it. You can get all of EU. You can get all of North America. Big chunks of everything. And I mean, even if it didn't succeed, it would get a lot of financial institutions behaving better just not to get the thing on them. I mean. I am just amazed what are you that. Thinking of tax on financial transactions. Yes, this is yeah, a classic thing. I mean, I am just sort of. The, the, the thing that amazes me is that our overlords are not doing a good job, right? They're, if they were doing. If this is 1965 or 68, the economy is growing, all of that, you know, and who cares about the Vietnamese? But anyway, if you were in that world, you might be able to understand why there wasn't much moon. And I'm looking around thinking. They're really not. Are, they're messing this up. And why is there so? Why and there's this enormous resistance that keeps popping up, and yet sort of the uh, juggernaut is continuing. Which to me is a. I think it requires explanation how we can have that many movements, our overlords not doing well at all, and yet it goes on. So we got a lot of hands up. I'm going to go to Willow, and then I'll I'll start going. I will end this as a, uh, as a question. Um, so and start by introducing yourself. Yes, sorry, I always do this. Um, I'm Willow, I'm a research affiliate at Center for Civic Media and also at the Berkman Center. Um, I really like the idea that a crowd can know itself better. Um, I read mm -hmm. a lot out of the Department of... The Department of Homeland Security has a blog, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> and there was a recent write-up on how crowds are far more unpredictable now. And my response to them was, they just know themselves better. Yes. Um, in light of that, and also that you can have all of these different affinity groups working on different things mm -hmm. at the same time, and usually uniting under the flag of things are messed up, um, without a trust in this, like, it's not worth lobbying our current systems because they're not going to be able to fix it. What, what we see is broken, and also that even if they could, it would be a painfully slow process that is not worth waiting on. In light of that, uh, if you agree with it, and also disagree, uh, what is the role of government, and how can that gap be handled responsibly? Like, What should we be asking for in these protests? Well, I mean, I obviously cannot just come up with a single demand, but I'm going to disagree with one thing. I think the fact that government as it is, is severely broken and unresponsive in many ways and all the things that I'm sure we agree on <coughs> does not take away the fact that it is still the most powerful doer and I think even if 
engaging it is slow and painful and comes at a cost because I mean there's a reason people don't want to engage with it. I don't think there's getting out of it. I think I'm sort of saying that there is no getting out of engaging uh, the electoral processes. Now the trick would be is not to get lost in them and become one more cog in this machine that's going to eat you up because that happens all the time and that's part of the reason why people are away from it. So I'm just hoping that people will come up with ways in which you can interface with the things that we, many people for right, you know, correct reasons have lost hope in, but are still the very powerful determinants of how many things happen. So you can, I mean, I, I'm not for, I don't think we can have, we can have a world separate from sort of these governance structures. What would be demands? I mean, I, again, the, the sort of just, if, if I think on the European uh, context, the the austerity measures have been really not, they've proven not to work to get even sort of forget the inequality part, they're sinking the whole economy. That should have been something, I just still can't get, wrap my head around the fact that the sort of Europe with all this energy and all of this left has just keeps not being able to stop those from really hurting large numbers of people's lives. So I don't have a single answer for a demand, I just want to think you know, how can these movements retain all the good things about them, <coughs> but do things that are, um, what's the word, they don't want to... But it sounds like a point of tension here is Willow essentially saying... There's no hope for them. Sorry, government, like, sorry, you've lost me, my, my faith. Yeah. Stick up. Not so much. <laughs> Whereas, as you're sort of reminding us, it's an incredibly powerful... I'm actor. saying that... And, and I, I, yeah. I, that seems like actually kind of a profitable disconnect to, to explore, because I... I, I, think it, I mean, I, I don't blame anybody for saying, government, you lost me. I wouldn't blame any... I mean, I, but I'm just sort of saying that even if it loses you, it has power over you. Wait, and I'm not even... I, I think... Uh, government has the potential to be an incredible uh, process of representing and acting upon the intent and desires of the people that it represents. Like, I think that that is incredible, and I and that is what I would strive for. Mm-hmm. But right now, I don't see like are are there ways through a crowd becoming to know itself or starting right. to know itself that we can make demands or requests, sorry to completely co-opt the conversation. No, 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 this is... in order to, to get Okay, so I mean, just sort of, if, if it gets very practical, we keep electing people and they get swollen up by sort of the lobbying process and all of that. I mean, at a minimum, you could elect people whose funding did not depend on the corporations or the lobbyists because, I mean, at the end, there's still the one person, one vote thing, no matter what you do. And it should be feasible to protect the representatives that do try to do something, you know, that get newly elected and that try to go there, I don't think we go out there and protect them as much. I think, you know, we kind of, sometimes people get elected and they get thrown into the system. You could use these new technologies to have their back and be with them and protect them from some of the pressures they're going to inevitably get because if you try to rock the boat, they're going to, you know, come for you. Uh, I don't really see us having... Uh, they, I mean, they have. The, I, I think. They, I, I don't want to compare again, right? I do, and I don't want to compare. It just shows you sometimes how little can accomplish so much. I, we could do more. I, I, I just don't. I, I haven't given up 
in fact, I don't think we can give up. I don't think we have the option to give up. It's like if even if you say, I don't recognize this government, it doesn't matter. Everything you do, the air you breathe, the quality of it, it's just... There is no exit, there is only voice. Yeah, something like that. That's <laughs> I'm pointing to you, directly at you. Well, I thought you, I'm Nancy Bayman from Microsoft Research, and I'm a, a professor in comparative media studies. So, I keep thinking, we were talking about this earlier, but it's just, I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect here between your arguments that these social media-fueled protests aren't able to build capacity, and your argument, or your question of why do these losers get to stay in power and why won't we tax financial transactions and so on? Because to link those two, as you implicitly do, mm. assumes that all of the traditional methods of building capacity are gone and that social media is the only way we could do that. No, no, no. To me, the question is, why aren't the unions effective? And as, as, as Sasha's been saying, right. what about these people who are who have these capacities and who are using them? So, right. So, I mean, just sort of to be clear, um, I wouldn't say that the only capacity there is is in social media. I'm just sort of looking at its particular impact. But I would say that there's also the cultural divide between the sort of the people who kind of knew the old way. In Gezi, they just could not understand this kind of pluralism, for example. They wanted to go and dictate certain things, and that wasn't going to work. They weren't used to the participatory way of organizing things that people wanted to do. So I think the old movements have, um, they've just sort of, their way of doing without both the cultural and the digital current methods being incorporated into it, isn't, there isn't that much capacity left there. I think that's part of, does that kind of get at what you're saying? So, so you would argue that the various civil rights organizations that exist, the various worker rights organizations that exist, those, those kinds of institutional solidarity organizations that, fight, that have been fighting for change. I think they're all eroded they're to a time. degree that they no longer have the capacities that they need in order to create... I think their capacity has eroded, uh, partly because you know, they are not connecting with these new types of social movements, and it's partly a, you know, just a generational shift. It's partly uh, the Teda Skochpol's argument is that they've gone from being sort of these very... They were too participatory in some sense. You know, you used to meet in every town and sort of, they've turned into sort of these managed organizations, she argues. I think she has a point where they're just kind of getting membership and getting changed. So there's this parallel erosion in the civic capacity in the United States that you can probably date back to 70s and on, on, on. It doesn't mean there are no great organizations. There are many great organizations, so you, know, you could find great examples. But when you look at the overall landscape, uh, I would argue that they've generally eroded and haven't really also managed to tap into the new kinds of places where you could get energy from. Yeah, right. Um, okay, you two guys, that's, that's pretty much my last questions here, just kind of So I'm Eric Staten, I'm a graduate student at Comparative um, Media Studies. And so I'm sort of curious about your historical comparison between sort of protests 
and social movements in the past compared to now. And I'm kind of wondering whether, you know, to what extent what you're seeing is a result of the sort of numerical capacity of mobilization through social media being greater now, so the sort of effects of that are proportionally less. That like having 100,000 or 200,000 people on the street today means less than having... That's basic. It's basically what I'm arguing. I mean, to, if you're if you're the you know prime minister of Istanbul, I'm sorry, prime minister of Turkey, and you know if ten years ago, hundred thousand people showed up in Taksim and fought with the police, you'd be like, holy heck! I mean, there's one hell of an organization here that is going to cause me a lot of trouble. And now you look at it and you think, I'm just going to wait till you know the interest dies down and they get a little tired and then they'll all go home. So it's, it's in a large part like symbolic. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously, I mean, so I'm not saying, to go back to part of what Nancy was saying, there is new capacity to do this. So I'm not arguing that these, there's no capacity. I'm just saying that it doesn't signal what that 100,000 is able to do for the second or third stage. I mean, if you were climbing without Sherpas and you got to base camp, it meant that you could do something, right? So I would give a good bet that you'll be able to go up to, you know, sort of um, to the summit too. Whereas right now, if you got to base camp, I have no idea what you're capable of. I really don't know, you know. And increasingly, I just take one look at you and you really, you know, one of the stories, they had people like had put like teddy bears on the outside of their backpacks at Hillary's step. I mean, at 85 you know, 100 feet. You want to get rid of every single gram. And it's just the level of kind of amateur climbers out there. So base camp no longer, I, I just say, you take one look at it and you say, okay, you're not going to make it. Right? And I think a lot of governments have learned to look at these. And I want to, we had this, uh, just two days ago, the um, Institute of Politics, the Kennedy School, they had um, somebody from Tumblr explaining how Tumblr connected uh, people, and Google did this too, right? Here, call your Congress people. Uh, uh, in that sort of the, the protest around SOPA uh, and people and Congress people got hundreds of thousands of calls and they freaked out my argument is because they did not know it did not signal the same thing I don't think they'll freak out again I think if you have the same thing and they get 300,000 calls generated by Google they're going to be like oh just Google generated Right, but what I'm saying is the same signal, the same protest won't work. The first time, the only reason it worked was because our Congress people usually have no clue how the internet works. <laughs> As you know, they usually really don't, so they didn't read the right signal. And I think they may well learn. Only once, shame on, don't get fooled again. Yeah. Something. There's an incredibly depressing but really helpful blog post from Mary Joyce who's done really good work on thinking about digital activism, which basically asks the question, are there best practices in digital activism? Bush, the response is no. The best practice is novelty. Right. If you pull it off for the first time, no one sees it coming and therefore it's highly effective. But you know why I think, this is my argument, I think because people don't know how to read the signal so they get freaked out and they read it the old way. Yeah, and I think the reason novelty repeat it, it right, then they have but, but if it had its signal capacity, repeating it would work. 
You see, the only reason it doesn't work when you repeat it is that they figure out how you, you did it kind of easily. If the 300,000 calls signal that you are going to primary the guy or gal, then the second time would be just as scary as the first time. You see, the novelty part is not, it's not the, that's why I'm saying stop looking at outputs. Look at the capacity and look at the signals because the output is misleading. Hi, uh, my name is Alp Simsek and I'm an assistant professor at the economics department here. Uh, so, very nice talk, thank you. I just wanted to go back to this issue of what the downside is. Uh, it seems to me there are uh, three possibilities. Um, um, the first one is that these mass protests actually, um, not only they are not backed by traditional capacity, they actually take away from traditional civic capacity through some mechanisms. The second one is that they're just they just happen, but they don't have much of an effect on traditional capacity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The third possibility, which um, is, is an option, is maybe they uh, encourage or complement traditional capacity building, but it happens rather slowly, so it comes with maybe with some delay. So I, I wasn't sure which of these three well, you are defining. So my own view is closer to the third, and let me tell you why. <laughs> Especially given what happened after the JZ events. I see a lot of capacity building activity. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on in Turkey, but in the U.S., for example, the, the Turkish patrons in the U.S. are organizing. In Boston, for example, we have a group, and mm -hmm. other cities that mm -hmm. are similar groups. And it's, uh, we don't know the counterfactual, but it's very unlikely that this group of people would come together. Right. If it's burned for... So even the protests might happen for artificial reasons. People come together for artificial reasons. Some of them actually stay together. Sure. I mean, yes. But my argument isn't that there's no capacity being built. My argument is that it's disproportionate to the amount of energy and the cr sort of the participation there was. I mean, there was, so there's still forums going on in Turkey and a lot of people are trying to do something. But given the size of the movement, so if the movement was this big, what is being done looks to me like a disproportionate amount. Now, in the long run, uh, it could well be, and Turkey would be a great example for this because uh, it's a mix between, it's neither like Egypt where there really was, like just civic life was very anemic for obvious reasons. So there wasn't much to begin with. Turkey's not like that. It's, you know, there's a lot of, there's enormous amount of creative class, there's a lot of tech know-how. Uh, and it's also not as, the movement's not as sort of, um, let's say, what's the correct word, as distant from engaging politics as some of the European movements. So maybe it'll be a third way. In, it'll, it'll be in the middle and there'll be more people thinking, how do we turn this into long-term engagement and they'll find new ways. So that's plausible and that would be an interesting case. And Turkey would certainly be, it would be one of the places where it would be possible to do this because of how much, I mean, the, the, the level of... Um, know-how in the the protester community was pretty amazing because I mean like if you go to some of the protests and the uh, tear gas comes or something like that and the movement in Turkey just came up with their chemists and doctors like that and people sent it to labs and analyzed and they knew exactly what was in it and how to neutralize and there's just a lot of know-how in the movement so maybe that will turn out to be maybe different maybe we'll see different capacities it's quite possible yeah um so I saw a hand up from Chelsea. There's a hand somewhere in the middle that I had missed. It wasn't your hand, Erhard. It was someone else's hand earlier. But if yours is the only hand, we can get a quick question from Chelsea, a quick question from Erhard. This is the speed round. 
So quick ones from each of you, and then the last chance for that. So, okay. So I also wanted to dig in a little bit more to this idea of capacity building. Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the 30 years since Sin has written his you know, seminal work on this idea of an opportunity structure, it seems like two ways have uh, been kind of taken to use that, right? One is to kind of focus on different products to increase capacity, so like looking at education or mm -hmm. something like that. So forming movements or interventions around products that hypothetically could increase the capacity of normal citizens. The other is to focus on this process of, of capacity building itself, which seems to have some pitfalls in terms of turning into something that, you know, is like the Occupy movement that has all process but nothing that you can continue to form people around. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering for you, how do you see in this moment when people are struggling to identify goals for these movements, them, them, you know, working in this tension. Do you see it still forming in the form of Well, yeah, so I, I think you can't not do process. I mean, given people's concerns about just electoral processes turning um, negative uh, and representation just turning into people just selling out or being disconnected or being pressured. So I think you just cannot look away from process. And I think a lot of these movements have been very process-oriented. Uh, I think they just have to find a way to... Mix uh, their process concerns into products, quote unquote, if you will, and and I just sort of have to say this: I don't think in the modern world you can get away from some electoral product somewhere. <coughs> Probably in many levels, you know, local, national, international. I just don't see a world in which you can do long-term impact without the electoral process being part of uh, some of the product, quote-unquote. But if you just try to do it the same way, you tell people, vote, show up, go home, it's just not going to work for you. Yeah, that's just obviously not going to work. Erhard, bring it in. you got 47 seconds. <laughs> 47 seconds, all right. Um, I'm curious to hear where, where you think um, the strategic leadership could or should emerge from in order to help these movements are full of smart, smart people, lots of experience building up. I mean, this is a, I think the, uh, there's, if you see, I mean, you, you, I think we, Sasha and I had this conversation, you know, you go look at people, some of the people who are running some of the infrastructure for Occupy, and you're like, don't I know you from Seattle? I mean, there has been this 10-year process, uh, maybe a 10 to 15-year process, and I think the 2011, 2013, I mean, there's now emerging veterans of these movements and so they are leaderless in the sense that there are no official leaders but there's a lot of leadership that is kind of emerging in these movements with people who have real experience in multiple places and things and I'm thinking and that's my argument is that that's where it would come from now the one of the best counter arguments David Graeber who writes a lot about the Occupy says well you guys say Occupy have no impact you guys say but look at his, his argument is it's going to have an impact like the Vietnam War anti-Vietnam War movement had which scared the living lights out of the state so that it didn't engage in another war for you know 30 years it was so scared of the sort of the Vietnam War syndrome but I mean and that's a sort of this is example of how these things work over uh, time and to my counter to that is once again that shows how the state once foiled a certain way looks at it and says how can I build alternative capacity to get around this so you don't have the draft you have a professional army and then you have you know sort of terrorism as your new uh, model of doing these things so I think what needs to happen is that I think a lot of the people in the movement have been thinking like 
graber in that there will be this long-term slow uh, process and I think they underestimated what they would face from the state and I think now that they have faced there's going to be more strategic thinking that comes from this generation and hopefully also from the previous generations that were very experienced, you know, the, you know, that stuff Nancy was talking about and used to look down upon these tools as riffraff stuff. They didn't take it seriously. In Turkey they didn't take it seriously. In a lot of places they didn't take it seriously. And I'm hoping that they too are looking at this generation and saying, well, wait, wait, maybe we gave up too soon and maybe we can... So on a hopeful note, does this not butt heads with the kind of inclusiveness that seems to power a lot of these movements? It seems to stem from um, what Paul Ford characterizes as um, why wasn't I consulted as a certain way to think about you know online behavior and culture. Right. You know, that kind of powers a lot of crowdsourcing and, and that sense that I need to have input. So where where do those where does that bridge get uh, get built? I'm really, like, I don't have the sort of, I wish I had the answer, uh, but I think it's going to emerge from these movements that uh, there's going to be, uh, I know, some, a lot of this is cultural norms in these movements that I think are evolving to, so. So we have uh, kept Zenep in the hot seat for two oh. hours, which is longer <laughs> than anyone really deserves to be in it. We get a round oh, of Oh, thank you. So thank you for those feedback. Thank you.